Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legvold. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is Lieutenant Colonel John Zimmerman. He is our newest squadron commander here at the Wing, which means he just became the person in charge of the part of our mission that provides medical care for injured or ill people in the back of our cargo planes. He's also what we call a traditional guardsman, and that means he drills one week in a month and a little bit over two weeks a year, because <laughs> we're both laughing at that already. Uh, while balancing a full-time civilian job, a family, and a pretty cool volunteer gig, which we'll get into as well. So um, today we get to learn all about that. Congratulations on taking command, and welcome to Beneath the Wing. Thank you, Chief. Honored to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about first about what it means to take command and the people in the mission you're now responsible for. So it's kind of like chugging a Red Bull along with a uh, glass of chocolate milk. It's very soothing, it's very calming, and it's very exhilarating. And doing that kind of on top of a uh, steel girder on a half-built building that you know has to go 20 more floors up. Is the, is the Red Bull and the chocolate milk a mixed drink, or is that two different drinks, double fisting? Uh, it's basically just, uh, I'm going to say bonged right in, but it is... It, it all comes together, right? Because it's exhilarating, it's exciting. Um, I've been in the military for 30 years, and you know, the the closer I got to this opportunity, the more I kept hearing friends and, and cohorts that had had squadron commands like, oh, this is gonna be the best time, the worst time, the busiest time, it's gonna go incredibly fast, however, and you're gonna look back and say, oh my goodness, but it's the, the squadron is the, the execution piece of the Air Force. Things happen at the squadron level. It's just, it's the, you're not a middle manager, you are a leader of people and a very specific part of the mission as a squadron commander, correct? Exactly, and we get to, we get to put our thumbprint, um, now you can't, you can't change everything about a unit. We're, we have instructions and we have um, doctrine and we have ways that we do things. And the way I think about it and the way I've described it to a few people is I grew up in Duluth and spending time down in Canal Park or living on the hillside and watching the ships coming in and out of the, uh, the canal in Duluth. Big ore boats just loaded down with taconite heading down, down lake. When they come out of the pier, if, you, if you're watching them, you can see them make a couple of degree turn once they're clear to make their right course. They don't turn fast and they don't move fast and turn fast coming in and out of the harbor because then you've just got problems. When you're moving something this big that has this much inertia, which is what a squadron has, you gotta be real careful on how many degrees of rudder input you put in. But you can, you can change direction. But as a commander, I only have a few degrees that I can, that I can work with. Can you change the speed as a commander? You can, but again, there's a lot of inertia, so you've got to slowly power up to increase, but you're constrained by, in a ship, the output capacity of the engines. In a squadron, you're constrained by the, the more, it's more the capability of the 
people. So we've got, you talked about traditional guardsmen versus full-timers, right? So we have about 100 folks in the squadron, but there's only five people that are there Monday through Friday. The rest of us rotate through, although I laughed when we talked about one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer. When we're out doing air shows and showing people our aircraft and talking to them about what we do, I say, one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer was a great recruiting slogan for the Army Reserve in the 1980s. Today, realistically, our squadron, um, if you're a flyer, you're going to spend the one weekend a month. You're going to spend two to four days a month flying. You're going to spend two to four days a month doing some other ancillary training that we're required to have. So our squadron has a spin-up time for individuals of about six hours to go out the door. If we get a call right now saying there's something that's going down, our training regimen, our battle rhythm, as it were, is set up so that at any moment in time, we could send people out the door either to plus up an aeromedical evacuation uh, hub or station that's already working or stand up a new one anywhere in the world. Let's, let's talk about the people that are doing that mission. Uh, you've got anything from a kid straight out of high school. Um, I, I mentioned before we started the podcast here that uh, one of your troops, Bell, was uh, one of my guests. And um, uh, yeah, new, fresh-faced, out of, out of high school, although she, she came in fresh out of college. Uh, but young men and women that are joining the military and have no military experience, you also have folks that have gone through and completed a, um, a medical provider certification, either a, a nurse or a, a PA, you have all of this hodgepodge of people with certifications and degrees and experience levels. How do you mix all that so that you can get a team out the door within six hours? So um, the, a lot of the prep comes on just a rolling month-to-month -month continual basis. Uh, we have a, a myriad of training requirements that our um, mission support crews and our uh, training section takes care of. We hold individuals accountable and we know that there's quite a few. We do training flights, like I said, several times a month to practice the skills that we have. We can take all of our um, equipment, bring it out to the aircraft, configure it, fly a mission to nowhere, as we, as I like to say, fly around the flagpole um, and back. The, the getting the folks out the door involves an entire squadron worth of people. So the, the flyers are nurses and medics. So those are the ones that accomplish the care in the air. Behind and below supporting them are like our medical service corps officers or our MSCs. Those are sort of experts in organizational management and utilization of an organization's tools. Um, and then we have our medical administrative folks like you know, the four alphas, which is the armed forces surgery code and, and Air Force AFSC, specialty code. Yeah, Air, Air Force specialty code, yeah. Um, which you'll um, so they they process the paperwork on a live mission that tells us who the patients are, who we're expecting, how we can prepare our minds for these patients, and also divvy up among the crew who has a greater experience in a certain patient subset. They also generate the paperwork to tell us where the airplane is going, where it's coming from, who's on the aircraft. So we're in a an interesting position, and, and there's this perennial debate among um, aeromedical evacuation, whether when I was a flight medic in the Army on Blackhawks, 
And we had this question, are we a helicopter unit that does a medical mission or are we a medical unit that does a helicopter mission? So here in the Air Force Aeromedical Evacuation, I would say it's a pretty settled um, uh, point that we are an operational unit that accomplishes a medical mission. There's a few out there that'll say, well, you're actually a medical unit that just happens to fly. But the, the preponderance of our requirements and training and a lot of our culture comes from the flying world. Um, does that okay. answer your question? It does. Uh, so you mentioned that you had time, you've spent some time in a Black Hawk as a soldier. How did you get there? In other words, you know, here we are, uh, you just took command of a squadron, you're a lieutenant colonel, kind of a big deal as people would say. Well, people know you. <laughs> I haven't seen your office, and I don't know if you have leather-bound books in there, but uh, you got to get here. Where did you start? How did you start your military service, and what, what brought you to the military? I would be happy to tell that. At some point, we have to circle back, because I also have to recognize our log dogs, oh, got it. Um, our yeah. comm, and uh, some of our other support folks. But, well, let's so, circle back on that right now, then. Okay. So if I'm... Yeah, I've spent my entire career on the ground, a, a mission support group guy, which basically basically is how the base functions, and that's been most of my life uh, in the military. If I am just coming at this from a novice point of view, I think of medical care, I'm either thinking of a basic clinic or I'm thinking of a major hospital. Now, I know enough about aeromedical evacuation that it's, it's kind of a combination of the two, but you have to be able to function as a ward in a hospital and taking care of patients. And that takes a lot of, lot of support. Um, and like, like you said, you know, you've got the people that are good at the records, good at the management, but there's still the people that have to keep the lights on, keep the radios working uh, and the phones working and all of the necessary functions. And what you're saying is your organization has all of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so we have logistics we call, they call themselves log dogs or logistics specialists. So they make sure we have the supplies and equipment that we need to accomplish a mission. Just like any hospital, you're going to consume bandages. You're going to consume IV tubing, needles, medications. Um, we have communication folks that ensure that we are able to communicate um, patient requirements and needs now. A lot of it's web-based, but we have the capability to use radios, uh, encrypted um, satellite communications to, to communicate anywhere. And then we have our, uh, our BMETs or biomedical equipment personnel and they basically fix all of the medical equipment that we perhaps overuse or break. So mm -hmm. those are, that's I think encompasses the squadron. Got it. Now we rely on other elements on the base for you know housing, food, etc. But that's that's what's uh, required for us to work. So for me getting here um, way back on January 2nd of 1991, I enlisted in the Minnesota Army National Guard, the 1st Battalion, 94th Armor, up in Duluth. I uh, grew up in Duluth and had had a passion for aviation, had been a Civil Air Patrol cadet through high school. Um, I was one of those kids and now still an adult that any time a plane flies over, I just automatically am drawn to it. Um, I was a kid that was drawing pictures of airplanes in the middle of class when the teacher was telling me to pay attention and saying, that's not going to lead you anywhere, mm -hmm. <laughs> Ms. Johnson. <laughs> um, so I enlisted in the Army Guard. They had medic openings. Um, at the time, actually, the Air Guard was full. This was back in the you know early 90s. Sure. Um, 
And so there was a waiting list, and I was kind of anxious to get out of Duluth. And uh, it was senior year of high school. I didn't see myself going to college. Uh, enlisted in the Guard, and uh, I was a Sergeant Marty Gonchez who said, hey, um, take a look at these tanks. We had the old M48 Korean War vintage tanks. He's mm -hmm. like, if you enlist in the Guard, he's a great recruiter. If you enlist, it's six years, one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer. Look at these tanks. We're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I was like, he said, but, but if you like it, the active duty army will take you. You just have to do six months back here and then you can go back down to MEPS or the military entrance processing station. They'll give you a list of places and you can pick where you want to go if you want to go somewhere. I said, all right, sounds good. So I went to basic training, Fort Knox, Kentucky, went to medical training down at um, Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And that's, I really bloomed. So the people that know me know that in high school, I was uh, part of the graduating class that allowed the upper 50% to say that they were from the upper 50% on their college applications. Oh. So, but once I was out on my own and in the, the military environment, I really started to find traction. And I know what I know I've now, got a clarifying question yeah. here. Were you one of those people that could say you were in the upper fifty percent, no, or were I was, you the opposite of that? Yes, I was part of the cadre. I was part of the base of support that allowed the other folks to check that block on their college application, saying, "Oh, I'm part of the upper fifty percent." On behalf of those people, yes, I'm sure they're very thankful. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to be the bottom of the mug, right? Yep. And so, um, so I uh, came back from training, back to Duluth. I was like, "Yep, my future lies." as John Elton would say, beyond the yellow brick road. Um, and I went back down to MEPS and I said, hey, how far can I get from Minnesota? And the printout came and the, the Army personnel special down there was like, well, Korea's open. And I said, all right, sign me up. So six months later, landed in Korea, um, was all gung-ho, wanted to go to the 2nd Infantry Division and be up on the line. And then um, I got assigned to the 43rd Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, which was far behind the lines in a very support function, mm -hmm. as a young, hardcore, gung-ho, 19-year-old-ish combat medic, I was crushed. Until I realized that, you know, six months later, the beds were comfy, the food was good, didn't have to spend a whole lot of time just sitting out in the field. We would roll up um, to support exercises with a forward surgical team and come back. And I was getting a lot of clinical experience. We had a, it was called an urgent care clinic. It was a kind of a scaled down emergency room, but we took care of about 8,000 Americans that were stationed at Camp Humphreys. Mm -hmm. um, we had a pretty busy airfield um, and we would do both clinic, like urgent care clinic, 24 hour shifts and uh, ambulance response. So I did that for two years. And um, you stayed busy at that. Yeah, That's got a lot of troops to take care of. Yep, and it was a lot of, I mean, bless our hearts, young Army enlisted folks, but they make some interesting decisions, and many times those result in urgent care visits. I got really good at stitches. I'll bet. Um, really good at some de-escalation and kind of rooting out what's the root cause of whatever's going on, what's the physiologic issue going on here, and how can we start addressing it. Worked with some great docs, worked with a great PA um, who really took to training us young medics. Um, 
spent two years there and then put in for the Army Flight Medic Program. Got a slot at Fort Rucker, Alabama with a follow-on to Fort Campbell, Kentucky to the 101st Airborne. So now I'm seven feet tall, bulletproof, graduated from the Army Flight Medic School, flying on Blackhawks, getting paid to go, you know, 120 knots, 50 feet above the trees with night vision goggles. A couple times a week because we had, we had a ton of flight time. Sounds like fun for a young man. It was good. And yeah. then, you know, as I started growing and thinking, all right, I want to grow my clinical practice. I want to do more clinically and looking at some of the patient loads that we were having um, and then had some um, heart-to-hearts with some of the leadership in the unit who looked at me and they were like, uh, why are you just, literally are asking me, why are you just a medic? I'm like, well, because I really enjoy it. And they're like, yeah, except you seem to have the capability to do a lot more and organizational-wise and people are really starting to look up to you mm-hmm. um, by the way you act. And I was like, what? Me? Yeah. So when I was offered re-enlistment, I made the choice to separate, transition back to the Guard. I called up the 1st of the 94th Armor, and they were like, man, it's been a short three years. Yeah, come on back. Um, Transitioned back, enrolled in uh, college, and uh, went to UMD for a year. And, you know, I, I enjoyed the environment um, of the military, wanted to continue serving, and that's kind of an understated, I don't say it very loudly, but, um, you know, I gave my soliloquy at commander's call and then during the change of command was I, I genuinely believe in our constitution, I, both of the state of Minnesota and the United States of America. I believe in our country and our culture with the, the clearly stated point that we are not perfect. We were not created perfect, and I'm using the air quotes on that. Mm -hmm. We are, however, on a path, on that long arc of justice, which curves towards a place where we do fulfill what we say. Because remember, when our our country was founded, there were people who who legally owned and physically possessed the lives of other people. Mm -hmm. Women did not vote. But here we are today where women do vote. Is part of your ethos of military service being, is one of your motivators in military service uh, the belief that you feel we are a part of the forward progress of the country? Yes. To create a space behind us and among us where discourse can take place, mm-hmm. where there can be discussions, where there can be provocative arguments for or against points. You know, I've, I've had a lot of good conversations on this podcast with folks who have been champions of diversity initiatives and inclusion initiatives in the military. And one of the questions that I frequently have asked them after getting their point of view is, are we getting this right? Are we getting it right? And so I'll ask you the same question. Do you feel like we're getting it right in the military when it w- comes to making this a place where people can succeed and there aren't barriers to their success? The challenge we have in answer, uh, the challenge I have in answering that question is we, we still don't have an Air Force or we don't have an Air National Guard that represents the state of Minnesota demographically. We don't have a military that demonstrates 
a, a mirror of our population. To, in order for us to know that we've reached that point, we will, we will have to be as close as, as possible to that. Because how can we say that we've, we've met all the goals when we just don't represent the population as a whole? We've, we've seen how that can be a helpful thing. And we're talking the outward appearance of our guard reflects the outward appearance of our of our state. Um, when we were called downtown uh, to provide security during civil unrest, and we looked differently than the community we're serving. Yeah. And yet at the same time, um, our adjutant general, one of his talking points was, we are taking 500 people out of their community. 500 people live in the Minneapolis and St. Paul cities as a part of the National Guard in Minnesota, and we are putting them on the opposite line of their neighbors in order to protect the property and the rights to um, protest. And that, that does speak a lot, but I, I agree, we still don't look like the community that we serve. And that, So I spent um, 10 years as a admissions liaison officer for the Air Force Academy, working many of those same goals, like how can we get out and spread the, the gospel of the academy and ROTC. Um, so one of the things that qualified me for that job was uh, back in Minnesota, going to college, um, walked into the Army ROTC office at UMD and said, hey, I'm coming out of the active duty, looking to go into a nursing program on the GI Bill. And they said, great, here's a stack of paperwork for your scholarship, fill it out, bring it back when it's fully filled out. Um, we do PT three days a week. Just because you're prior enlisted doesn't mean that you're gonna, you know, we're gonna cut you any slack. You need to do everything else. Um, and uh, so come back when that paperwork is filled out. And I was like, okay. And I walked out, walked around the other side of the building and walked into the Air Force ROTC office and said, same thing. Hey, I'm coming off active duty, using my GI Bill, kind of interested in nursing. And the uh, NCO looked up and said, great, we're always happy to have prior enlisted people here. And one of the detachment officers came out and said, well, you're interested in nursing, that's great. We've got uh, scholarships that we can apply for at St. Scholastica here. And I said, oh, there's probably paperwork to fill out, right? And uh, Sergeant Nelson said, yep, but why don't you just sit down, let's fill it out together. Let's just work through this, we'll put the paperwork in, um, and there's no obligation, but you know, let's, let's see if we can help you with this. I'm like, all right, this is a little bit better. I said, well, let me guess. PT, right? And they said, yep, we do PT three days a week. But if you pass your fitness test, you don't have to show up. And uh, we play basketball on Fridays. I was like, sold. Uh-huh. Fun. But I'll, I'll go after the uh, Air Force PT standards any day um, over the, the <laughs> Army ones. They just don't look like fun. Um, and I'm not a runner. So... Really? For your height? Oh, I'm, I'm not a runner. Um, I avoid that like the plague. I always well, have. That's why, that's why we have gators and bikes and planes. I, I and know, things, the Air so. Force, we fly places, right? And when we get off the plane, we hitch a ride on a truck. <laughs> uh, but no, that it brings that subtle distinction, that subtle difference of sit down, let me help you with this, and that welcoming environment and keeping that welcome environment for anybody um, that wants to come in and join, seeing the value in the human soul uh, sitting across the desk and saying, how can I help you? And we need good 
well-qualified folks that are motivated to come in and join. Um, and it worked out well for us because, I mean, here you are, comfortable, comfortable chairs, hot chow, great people to work with, right? And we, yeah, and it was it was a good four years in ROTC. I learned a lot. I made that transition from enlisted to officer. Mm -hmm. So in our squadron, um, I would lose count if I tried to remember how many of our officers are prior enlisted. And we really pride ourselves on that mindset. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things that, okay, so speaking about what are we doing or are, are we successful? One of the benefits, one of the great things about the, the military, the U.S. military, and especially the what I see in the, our squadron and across Minnesota Air Guard is if you can meet the entry level requirements and you can enlist and we can pay you to train and pay you to learn a skill and if you choose to and we see promise in you and you see promise in yourself you can move up and you can transition from an enlisted to an officer role. One of the downsides is right that's sort of a uh, how would I say, like a, a continuation of somewhat of a caste system. However, you know, in a two-tier officer versus enlisted. But when I describe this to people, I say it's, it's an opportunity for individuals to select which point they do. We cannot function without either, right? If we just had a bunch of officers walking around, it would be just a lot of discussions and PowerPoints. It's the, the non-commissioned officer corps, which forms the bedrock of the United States military. That's where the expertise is. That's where the, the grunt level motivation. It's the NCOs that are making sure that standards are, standards are set and adhered to, that people are led in the challenging environments, right? You can get anybody to perform maintenance on a ramp today, right? It's bright, sunny, a little bit of a wind and it's nice. Mm -hmm. When it's 10 below and you need something done on an aircraft, that's the challenge. Or if it's like at the deed where it's 120 degrees. And that's where the, the NCO Corps, because if it's done right, the airmen know, hey, Sergeant so-and-so would, would be out here with me. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they are right there, but. Um, it's that whole idea of, I, I like to, to think that it's the gift that we have, and speaking as a non-commissioned officer, for my, you know, my entire career as an enlisted person, which I chose to stay enlisted because it is a better place to lead people through motivation, inspiration, and influence rather than um, conversations and PowerPoints yeah. and, and pontification. Um, we actually get to go out there and work with for um, directly influencing and getting the mission done on the day-to-day, -day, which is great. And you've had the opportunity to experience both of that in your career. Which yeah. one did you like more? There are some days I would, there are some days I miss being just an E4 flight medic. Mm -hmm. Just had the job to do. E4 place to is go. the greatest place <laughs> to be. <laughs> so we have the E4 Mafia. Everybody does. In the squadron. Yeah. And it's, and I, you know, when, when I need, when I need to really get a, a finger on the pulse of, is this really working or not? Mm -hmm. I'll go down to the e, one of the E4s and be like, all right, they, it's sort of a, okay, so explain to me how you understand this. If you want to know if everything's getting filtered down, are we doing this or are we not doing this? Are yeah. we doing this because we have to? But, you know, ROTC helped me transition from being that E4 to being an, an Air Force leader. Had a great um, experience at the uh, detachment, DET 420 up at UMD, um, and then getting my 
nursing degree from Scholastica. Um, senior year, I was fortunate and actually did an internship with the 934th Airlift Wing through the Reserve Officer Association. There was a program where they were taking one to two cadets from each detachment. So 410 and 415 down here in the cities and 420 up in Duluth. And we would spend the drill weekends with the reserve. That launched me into my first permanent duty assignment because the reserve um, unit had just come back from their annual training tour at Launch Dual Regional Medical Center in Germany. And one of the captains said, hey, when you put in your dream sheet, you should put down Launch Dual because apparently the, the system that the Air Force was using at the time, so new computer system, mm -hmm. wasn't showing Launch Dual. It would show Ramstein in the clinic, but people over there were hearing that it was harder to get people to put in for Launch Dual. So when you were going through the uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps with UMD, was your intent to go back to active duty? Yep. So actually, yeah. So Air Force, especially at the time, the the um, the obligation is active duty. Sure. Okay. So Army does both. Though the Army ROTC, you can go guard or you can go reserve status or active. Mm -hmm. Air Force ROTC has been almost exclusively straight active. Now there are some. Yep. But they've changed that just yeah. recently. Yep. Where you can go out of ROTC right into a guard or reserve unit. Which we're getting right, and that's all about being more of a blended force. Yep. And you've been Air Force, full Air Force longer than I, but it, you know, when you think about there's the active duty, there's the guard and reserve. Mm -hmm. In AE, in the Aeromedical Evac community, we are unique how unique we are, but we're we're sort of a closed shop or a closed family. We've got 18 reserve. Nine slash now ten guard. We just stood up a new unit down in Fort Worth, um, or are standing it up, and four active duty. So the like we say ninety five percent of the the personnel in AE are guard and reserve, um, but yet a lot of the proponent stuff is active duty. And yet when we go out and deploy, uh, we we the term we rainbow our crews together. So at an operating location like Germany. We might have six different squadrons that have sent people there. One or two guard you know, three reserve and one active duty, but we'll, instead of j flying with just the five people you came with from your unit, we, we spread, um, we mix people you in. mix everybody together and get a diverse look about your crew. Yep, and it's based on, um, there it's operational diversity, right? right? So we talk about how diversity brings strength. Mm -hmm. So we, in there we think about it, strength across the unit. So we, um, with same thing like with drawing people from different backgrounds. Um, yeah, so we bring people together, spread them out. So back to ROTC, otherwise I have to keep Jason Squirrel. So yep. ROTC, four years, um, lucky enough, got a slot to Germany. Um, my wife and I were dating at the time, and I still remember got the, was walking around campus, and one of the other cadets, this was the spring of senior year, April-ish, said, hey, um, assignment drops have come. The colonel has them over at the detachment. So I raced on over, and said, hey, sir, I understand that the the order drops are in, he said, or the rips or whatever we call it at the time. He said, yeah, where were you going to go? I said, well, I, uh, I think San Antonio is the biggest medical center. He goes, no, you had something else on your list. I said, oh, oh, you mean launch tool? And he's like, yeah, wh where is that? I said, well, it's in Germany. And, you know, I caught wind that maybe they'd see. He's like, you really think they're going to send a brand new lieutenant to a place like that? I said, well, uh, we got a dream. He's like, all right, where, where else he had you? San Antonio? I said, yeah. And what was your, he said, well, you're going to be disappointed. You're not going to Lackland. I'm like, all right. Um, I think number two was Travis out in California. Yeah. He's, I said, Travis, he shakes his head. I was like, um, 
right, Pat? And he shakes his head. And I was going through the list of like the most sure. desirable large medical centers. Yeah. And I got down to Keesler Air Force Base on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I was like, mm-hmm. uh, Keesler? He was like, and he said, no. Wow. I said, I, sir, I've run out of large, you know, Air Force medical centers. Yeah. He goes, are you going to Germany? I said, really? He said, well, that's what I heard. And he holds up the paper. And I said something, are you? He's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not BSing you. And I'm still a colonel. And I was like, yes, sir. Um, and he said, congrats. And I was like, wow. So kind of the kind of the dream shot. And I'm like, wait a minute. Doing the math on, all right, so dating. Can't bring a girlfriend to Germany. So I hopped in my car, drove down here, took my wife out to dinner at the Black Forest Inn. As you know, as a surprise she's like oh what are you doing down here i'm like well i just want to take you out to dinner and about halfway through the meal i said do you like the schnitzel and she said yeah it's pretty good i said well get used to it and i slid the orders across the table and she looked at it and my wife's a very pragmatic person and Mm -hmm. she looked up at me and she said well you're going to need to propose to me and then we're going to need to do this and she like just started going through the checklist she had a checklist for you i was like yes indeed so um we got hope you did that quickly did we (laughs) Um, that was April, May. We got married in August. I went TDY for three months down to Lackland to get trained up to go to Germany. Mm-hmm. And then we landed on December 31st of 1999, which as we all remember was Y2K. Yep. New continent, new country, new marriage, new adventure. And it's been an adventure since. Yes. And the adventure continues. I've been uh, speaking with Lieutenant Colonel John Zimmerman, new commander of our Aeromedical Evacuation Squadron, and we've got most of his career story, and when you uh, stick around, please, uh, we'll be right back. We'll finish that up and have a little bit of fun along the way, but in the meantime, um, please listen closely. Our Director of Psychological Health has a message for everybody, especially this September, which is Suicide Awareness Month, so we will be right back. Hi, this is Mary Matson, the Director of Psychological Health for the 133rd. The Department of Defense and the 133rd are partnering during the month of September to bring awareness to veteran suicide. This year's slogan is connect to protect, support is within reach. Please go to www.dspo.mil spm to find out more and to find some resources. If you or someone you know is in crisis or having thoughts of suicide, please call the Veterans Military Crisis Line for confidential support available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-273-8255 and press one. You can also text to 838-255. If you would like to contact me, please call me at 612-713-2099. Again, that's 612-713-2099. Thanks, Mary, for that important message. And again, if you are uh, someone that needs help, please make sure that you reach out to her. I've been uh, talking with Lieutenant Colonel John Zimmerman, new commander of the AE, Aeromedical Evacuation Squadron. Uh, And we've been getting to how did you get from a Duluth High School graduate all the way to becoming a squadron commander. And, um, you know, you'd just gotten assigned to Germany, and your girlfriend at the time gave you a checklist that required you to propose, and off you go to Germany, right? Yeah, so we had been, you know, dating through um, junior and senior year. Um, 
and she was down here at the U. I was up in Duluth um, making the long distance relationship work, and we were, mm-hmm. we had we'd gone through a lot of the negotiations, whether it was overt or subtle. Like, where do you see yourself in life? Is it are, is this you and I a thing? Um, is there any other lily pad each one of us wants to hop to? Um, the big test was when I did a, uh, a Russian immersion um, between junior and senior year, going out for two months, and it was the, all right, we're each are gonna see, is there something else that um, catches our eye? Is there anything else that, you know, do we miss being together more than we like being apart? Came back and it was, no, business is, don't say business as usual. That sounds bad. Uh-huh. The excitement was still there. That was a better way of putting <laughs> that. She would have been disappointed in you. Uh, and so we landed in Germany, yep. um, Y2K, and started out with that adventure. Uh, as we all know, the lights did stay on. Amazing. Um, yep. The, the world did not uh, devolve into caveman days. Although what nobody prepped us for was the Germans have this tradition of blowing a lot of fireworks off at midnight. Ah. So we were down, so for those folks that have been to uh, Ramstein, right, which is our main aerial hub in Germany, um, the the area around there is uh, very Americanified, you know, of this wing, I would say a huge percentage of folks have spent time there, and so we use some terms like K-Town. So Kaiserslautern is the large German city near there, but they just sort of shorten it down to K-Town. Mm-hmm. Downtown K-Town, New Year's Eve, um, and all of a sudden, all these fireworks start going off, and we're like, oh, I guess we didn't get this on the uh, briefing. But it was quite exciting. And then we spent three years there and then uh, rotated, which I had a great assignment doing um, med surge, really growing my nursing skills. So the, the AE mission, the Aeromedical Evacuation Mission, mm-hmm. can best be described as operating a community hospital that uh, in the back of an airplane. So we convert... C-130s, C-17s, KC-135s, KC-46s, C-5s, pretty much anything the Air Force has that has wings and flies, Mm -hmm. we can convert into uh, carrying patients. It was very impressive to me when I flew with aeromedical evacuation as a patient uh, early in my time in this job, and they strapped me to a, well, first off, they let me watch taking this bare aircraft, nothing in it, and suddenly there's um, uh, posts going up in the middle of it, and they're strapping uh, gurneys onto it or litters, um, basically a a cot you can pick up and carry. Um, And they strap me down to one, and they practice picking me up, carrying me in, strapping me in, and doing it so gently, but also quickly and the communication that your folks have with one another during that process. It's, it's impressive and it's quick. You can tell it's well rehearsed. So some of the neighborhoods we land in aren't the ones where you want to stick around a long time. Mm-hmm. So that's why we do practice that expeditious in yep. and out with the, and we call it an ERO or an engine running onload or engine running offload. Um, and we practice that regularly where we, um, you don't want to shut the aircraft down and you want to spend the minimal amount of time there. Right. Um, but it's it's meds what we call medical surgical or med surge level care. Mm-hmm. Now these are people that um, you can you don't have to be focused on every second in order for them to survive, um, and that's kind of the base level. However, we have the capability in the AE system to 
take care of people who are severely critically injured. And for that, we bring along a team called a Critical Care Air Transport Team, or a CCAT team. Okay. So our, our basic AE crew, or our, our nominal or, or textbook A air medical evacuation crew is two nurses and three medics. We can operate for up to about 18 hours worth of flying time. If we need, if we project that we might have a longer day, we can expand that out to three nurses and four med techs and by regulation that allows us to be working for a total of about 24 hours. And that's including the spin-up time, configuration, flying until we shut the engines down. And those are, so a lot of our rules, regulations, guidance, doctrine, et cetera, is based on safety and, and building in a bubble of safety around us so we don't make, get so fatigued that we make bad decisions. Right. So that's what governs our, our lives. So we're taking care of mostly med surge folks um, and that's sort of our expected training level, or that's the, the level to which we train to. But yep. if somebody's really injured, we can pick them up from the point of care, and it used to be back in the 90s, AE would only move stabilized, or sta they would move stable patients, which means they're been dis you know, discharged from the ICU. Yep. Well, then the idea came around in the 90s, well, why don't we stabilize them while we're transporting them? So now we have these CCAT crews that have a critical care physician or an ER doc. So we've got a, a doc specialized in taking care of tenuous people, a nurse from an ICU that's experienced in taking care of tenuous people, and a respiratory technician. Mm -hmm. Now our, our whole in-route um, in critical care team um, picture in the Air Force also has some specialized crews that will take care of um, premature babies. So we have some neonate transfer teams. We have a specialized burn team that comes out of San Antonio, and then we have uh, portable ECMO teams. Okay, I just want to pause for just a second because I know there's folks that listen to this that aren't necessarily in the military and they just heard something that was odd. And that is why when I think of a soldier or a sailor, airman, guardian, or marine, I'm getting used to saying guardian. Don't forget the coasties. And uh, yes, a coast <laughs> guardsman. Um, I don't think a baby is on a list of somebody that's eligible to serve. Can you really quickly tell me why oh. the military needs to know and have specialized care teams that can take care of infants? Yep, that's an excellent point. And give an example of when we've had to do that. Oh, I've, so I've done that before. Um, so we have Americans stationed overseas. So we have bases in Europe and in the Pacific Rim. Certainly. And so many of those are, we call accompanied tours where you get to bring your family with. Okay. And that's because we station folks there for three years. So there's sort of a balance of the longer you're in a location, the more ownership you take of the processes there and the more you um, are invested in the activities of the unit. Sure. Um, and so if, if you're going to be there that long, we really need to have your family there because otherwise we're not going to be able to retain the folks that need this. So we have these overseas bases and there's debate and there's discussion about it, but the value is that number one, it's closer to areas of the world where there have been conflict. Two, basing in friendly countries is a direct, tangible, enduring expression of our friendship and our willingness to defend freedom and freedom ideals outside of our borders. And if there's something that 
you know, the 1900s taught us was it's better to engage early and to be present than ignore and hope it goes away. Mm -hmm. So, right, we've got bases in Germany, Spain, England, um, and then in the Pacific Rim, we've got Japan, Korea. Sure. Um, so we have to have people that are able to provide evacuation if, if necessary for the family members of our... Yeah, so the family members are there. And, sure. Um, so we had one of the missions um, where we do um, transfer, we do missions from um, Washington, D.C., from Andrews, or Joint Base mm -hmm. Andrews, whatever they're calling it this month, um, across the country. And so we, we landed and saw the manifest had a um, real young tyke on there and had an in-route care team. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a, a dependent, or a, I, my wife hates the term dependent, yep. which, um, a family member. Certainly. Um, we've talked a lot about AE and... Oh, come on. It's like the awesomest unit on the base. I, I know. They're, they're fantastic. They're good folks. But I... Most, you, you mentioned, five people work out there full-time, and it's a squadron mm -hmm. of almost 100 people, and you're included in that batch of not the five full-time people. You balance an outside career on top of all of this. Um, outside of this, you're also a medical provider, right? Nurse anesthetist, which so, I can only say when I'm asleep. Actually, actually it's a funny joke. Uh -huh, nice. <laughs> all right, say Methodist. Okay, Method Methodist. Say anesthetist. Anesthetist. My tongue gets tied up on it. <laughs> Probably why I'm not a Methodist. Um, you work in the VA hospital? Correct. So I'm a practitioner at the Minneapolis VA healthcare system. Okay. Right across the street. All Makes of, commuting real easy. Yeah, for sure. All, all of your patients are veterans. Correct. One of the things that I've always admired about that organization over there is the singularly, f their, their focus, their mission is always to take care of veterans. Yes, with an asterisk that of the last um, year and a half, I don't know if you heard, but there's been this public health crisis that sort of bubbled through the country and the world. Um, the VA actually has started taking care of civilians. They have. It's called the fourth mission, and I guess if I could I'd put in for some VA pay today to spread the gospel. But yeah. So, the, 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 yeah, the Veterans Health Administration does care almost exclusively exclusively for veterans. Now that's two different crowds. Um, there's those who incurred a service-connected disability. I mean, mm -hmm. they were in the service, something happened, and they either um, requested coverage right away or later on in life they said, hey, I really think that the reason I've got bladder cancer is because I was in Vietnam. Sure. And the VA says, yep, we're, you know, we're because of the things you were exposed to in Agent Orange and defoliants, yep. There's also a group that um, served in the military, served honorably and were discharged, but didn't necessarily incur any uh, disability directly connected to it. However, at this stage in life, they don't have any other health care and they don't have any means to provide themselves health care. And so the the VA evaluates their means to provide health care and then steps in and provide it. What's the biggest challenge you think we are facing when providing care for veterans? What's the big, what do you think is the biggest issue when, when it comes to providing good care for vets? Ooh, that's a tough one. So 
You've been throwing your softballs all the way up until now. Yeah, well, so understand, I'm a drone, right? So I, I go in, I, I do my job, I do it well, I do it in concert with the other, what I call internal customers yep. at the VA. I, and the, the, I would say the shoulder-to-shoulder, peer-to-peer work across departments at the VA, we work extremely hard to connect with each other. There's a lot of camaraderie over there between the different sections. Or Now, we'll, we're like siblings or cousins, right? We'll make fun of each other and talk about how long these people are but in the end we actually when we pick up the phone it's nothing but hey how can we make this how can we get the right thing done legally ethically etc for the vet um, I mean we could talk about the access right do, do veterans know to ask not everyone knows to ask there's uh, I mean there's bureaucracy and there's cumbersomeness but once they get into the system oh and it's also like we're the VA when you say VA in big quotes that is a large organization with multiple entities. Right, it's not just about healthcare. Yeah, so I work yeah. at the VA and friends will come to me and say, hey, how do I get a rec? My dad needs a copy of his discharge paperwork, his DD-214 yeah. from the 1950s. And I look at him like, I can tell you what the induction dose of propofol is to go to sleep. I can tell you where to put the EKG leads, but I'd, that's part of the, you know, it has something to do with the VA or, mm-hmm. hey, I, I hear that you know, my, my grandma can get a pension to help her pay for some costs because my grandfather was in the military. Or, hey, can you help me get my uncle's VA headstone? Like, yeah, that's a completely different office. So sometimes it's navigating, like, to whom do you go to? And the number one person or number one place I would refer people to, and I do, is to their county veteran service office. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's... Um that has been something that I, I don't think is necessarily publicized as well as it could be. As if, if somebody qualifies for veterans care, even if they don't know, I served in the military, my ears are ringing, what do I do? Hey, you have somebody in your county that can help you through that. And it's just like when you were looking to join ROTC or, or um, you, you showed up, you went to one recruiter and they handed you a bunch of paper. And you showed up and you went to another person and they helped you. And to me, that's what I see when I see these county VA administrators is they're here and they will sit and they will help you. Is that accurate? Yep. Yeah. And that's, and it's, right. If you really want to go down a rabbit hole, the the county level government in the U.S. is really a, a point that's taken for granted and glossed over, but that's where a lot of the rubber hits the road. That's where a lot of the action happens, whether mm-hmm. it's veterans issues, right, helping vets navigate the the plethora and kaleidoscope of things available, whether it's um, public health, that's a huge thing that's really come up in this last two years of mm-hmm. people understand, oh, there is a public health department. They do more than just inspect the buffets. Um, but yeah, that's the county government. So I'd refer folks to the county, and I, it probably is the just the access. That's the biggest challenge facing vets is the gaining access. Uh, yes. All right. Well, not, you, not finding parking, though. we got plenty of parking over today. Plenty of parking. Okay. And we've also opened up um, community-based outpatient clinics. That's been an initiative in the last decade and a half. And I, I guess one of the last things would be the VA today is not the VA of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And that when we look at the VA's... Um, internal uh, and external reviews and customer surveys and stuff, the, the, 
the satisfaction shows extremely high, not, not just on the ones we're getting internally, yep. but when they do community surveys and we contract with companies to, to look at you know, how people, the ones who are in the system love us. The people who haven't set foot in a VA or haven't seen it have a much different perspective. So it's sort of like an insider, hey, you guys can talk bad all you want, but the people who go here like it. Um, and then the, uh, the last part is the VA is interesting in that it's a government-run system. So I, I would say it's often a target for folks who don't think that's right, but when you dig into it, you see the cost per encounter significantly lower. The VA is able to negotiate for prices. Mm -hmm. um, as one of the largest single entity purchasers, the prices that we are told um, we get are significantly lower than other locations because of bulk value, but I could go on all day. We, but let's talk about the guard. We probably could. <laughs> Better yet, we, there's so much more to cover here. Um, second half of the uh, the podcast, I like to have a little bit more fun, so we'll shift gears just a little bit, maybe go back to the guard. I don't know. Because um, there's so much that makes everybody in, out here tick. Quick questions. Yeah. So here's here's the Speed rules. Round. I interviewed an engineer once, and he, he really did a good job analyzing all these. So first thing that comes to your head, just, yeah, it's the lightning round. How's that? Hmm. No analyst, no no comment. Just give me your first answer that comes to your head. How's that? You ready? You know I went through SEER, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> You're going to be fine. All right, easy one. Fire trucks, red or yellow? Red. Movie or TV show that made you cry? Beaches. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not supposed to laugh at these. Go-to karaoke song. Friends in low places. All right. Best travel destination. Hawaii. Big Island. Kona. Mullets are coming back. If you could, would you? No, I'm high and tight till I die. All right. Best hair band from the 80s. You know I'm a dreamer, but my heart's a gold. In impressive, Motley Crue. I away high, so I wouldn't come home low. I got it. <laughs> First Motley Crue answer that I got. That's good. All right. Um, I am a red fire truck person as well, although most of the time that I was a firefighter, I was dealing with Air Force Ones, and they were all yellow. Oh. And so, yeah, that... That's just one of those things. Have you seen the lime green ones out east? Uh, yeah, I'd prefer not to. I, I'm still a... Red fire trucks are just... It's it's the right thing to do. Um, you were a part of the 43rd Mobile Army Surgical Hospital in Korea, and they call that the Hollywood unit because that's what MASH, the TV show, was based on. So the exact... Yep, so back in the... During the war, it was the 8055th. Uh-huh. Uh, surgical Hospital Mobile Army. So the 8055th and the 8063rd were two MASH units that fed patients up to the 121 General. Okay. And then there was an individual who was in the unit, wrote a book, turned into the movie, and if you picture 8055, he transposed and changed the letters over to 4077. Ah. So the unit, it was a real unit back in the um, 50s, up through the 70s, 80s, it was up north um, in the Western Corridor. And if you go online, you can read all the, the history about where it was. And um, so the legend handed down was that the um, the most of the characters in it were real. Mm -hmm. So they were at the time you could write about real people and just change the names. Yeah. Um, and so it 
they changed the name to the 407th that came down to Camp Ripley, Camp, Camp, Ripley, Camp Humphreys yep. back in um, I don't know, 70s, 80s. It stayed there. I was there from 92 to 94, mm-hmm. and the unit closed down in 96. 96. Okay. And nice. that's because the, the mash itself, it, we would take more than a soccer field to set up. It was like a 40-bed hospital out of tents and um, shipping containers that would expand out. But yeah. what we discovered was in a fast-moving engagement, having a convoy two miles long and setting this thing up that took like a day was just not a, a, it was a non-starter anymore. So we transitioned while I was there to operating forward surgical teams, yeah. three vehicles, 20 people completely dependent on outside forces for security, et cetera. So we would set up, so this is interesting, kind of a foreshadowing. We would go up north and support the forward support battalions or the main support battalions of the second ID. The entities called the Charlie Matter, Charlie Medical, Charlie Company Medical. Mm-hmm. And some of these we'd set up on these uh, river valleys next to these flat areas of gravel. And so we'd set up our hospital tent and the, the war games would commence and they'd get these simulated casualties in and we would simulate doing surgery to them. Um, and then they'd take them outside and like a C-130 would come in and land and they'd load up. This other group would take them and take sure. off. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. And then they'd leave and we'd go back to doing our stuff. And now here you are. Just So I've been in every, this marks being the kind of the last chain. So for instance, um, I have flown every leg of the evacuation, or I've worked every level of patient evacuation, both as a frontline medic in a scout platoon for a tank battalion, yeah. to the um, intermediate treatment, or the rotary wing to the intermediate treatment, fixed wing at, from the intermediate treatment all the way back to the United States. Not at the same time, because that of would be not. That'd be a killer, but yeah. I've done every leg of that, and then yeah. across the Pacific back to the U.S., and then within the U.S. Have you ever, and I know there's there's uh, uh, HIPAA rules here, but have you ever, now on the far, far end of this, they've gotten out of the military, and now they're a veteran. Any synergies there? Have you seen a soldier that at one point you had seen along the leg? No. But um, you could now. So, I mean, yes. really, you're so true. Every single leg along the way, all the way to veterans care. Yep, but although, like, when we're downrange, um, so I've deployed twice so far with, um, and I, I've come across other Minnesota Guard people, mm-hmm. and it's always, I always make it a point, like in Germ- I was in Germany last summer, deployed, and we had, you know, I, as a chief nurse of that deployed AE element. So our mission was to fly from Germany down to the Middle East. Qatar is our um, default base. We configure C-17s, which we don't have here in Minneapolis, but again, that's part of our expected capability. So those are the large four-engined, high-T-tailed cargo planes. They look like flying guppies. Um, Really great aircraft, though. They were designed with AE in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, They have uh, plug-ins on the wall to run oxygen. They have regular plug-ins to hook up electrical. Um, It's my favorite plane for eight. Yeah, I love the 130. I love the dirty 30s. Sure. Um, but the, the 17 is really more of a, a practitioner's test bed. But I would review the, the cases coming through and read through each one just to make sure that the crew that was going to fly that mission um, had kind of a heads up or something to think about. Um, and I would see guard people come through and 
make it a point to get out to the flight line as they came through and say hi to them. It was always, you know, easy to see with the red bull patch on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you know a bunch of MASH stuff, right? The whole history? A chunk of it. Right. And the movie and the show. I mean, I was raised watching the show. All right, well, so let's check on this. Radar had a stuffed animal. What was it? A bear. What president is Hawkeye Pierce named after? Ooh, good question. No idea. It is a trick question. Yeah, Actually, it's Benjamin Franklin, and he was never president. So, yeah. Colonel Potter's horse's name. Trigger. Sophie. Dang it. MASH was filmed in a state park in which state? California. What was the name of the state park? Pass. I have no clue. What is it? <laughs> Malibu State Park. Oh. I've seen the pictures where they filmed it. Which actor or the character that he played uh, was in both the movie and the TV show? Radar. Yep. Uh, which character on the show do you most identify with? Hmm. Okay, if you would have asked me, you know, a little while ago, it would have been more of like the Hawkeye. Uh-huh. Right? The renegade. Let's just get it done. Let's have fun. Last 20 days, I am um, morphing into Sherman T. Potter. Colonel Potter. Great. Every podcast has a drinking question, so here we go. You and Colonel Potter, the MASH commander, now that you're both commanders, I totally can see that morph, uh, sitting around sipping some good old brandy. Talking about brandy. She's a fine girl. What a good good wife she'd be. Sorry, did that throw you Waiting. Out? But my life, my love, and my lady are, is the sea. Okay. Gosh, getting the music geek going today. This I'm just is trying fun. To get the, que- I'm just, the questions aren't going as well as I anticipated. You're so doing I'm great. To throw you off. All right. It's <laughs> asymmetrical <laughs> warfare, which is fourth generational warfare, which is, for those of you that like to read up. Uh, on, we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> later. You're, so you're sitting around sipping some good old-fashioned brandy, talking about lessons learned in former days. Now that you're commanding a medical unit, Operational unit that accomplishes a medical mission. Gosh, you're good at that. Now yeah, that sure. you're commanding that, what do you think the similarities in command between commanding an operational unit that provides medical services is and a Korean MASH unit in modern um, medical care? Right, so there's always going to be the core functions you have to do and you have to prepare for on a regular basis. And there's always going to be the, the red herrings or the, the things you can never prepare for. So that's one of the challenges we have with our training is we have some static training profiles that we do and that we've done forever in the expectation the way Aeromed. There's like a, the mission set we set, like the, the um, you know, two nurses, three med techs, um, but events of five weeks ago and what happened in the aeromedical evacuation system and the aeromobility command and the air bridge that was set up out of Kabul took a lot of those things and just said, all right, there, we physically just cannot do this mission with this static group of people and try to be the best that we can be. Same thing with you know the MASH unit. They do what they could. So they talk about the principle of meatball surgery. Yeah, You're doing life limb and eyesight saving surgery it's not going to be pretty it's just enough to ligate bleeders um, 
maybe do a quick amputation and things like that. You do what you can with what you have at the moment. And that's kind of the idea behind AE is, knock on wood, we'll have air superiority, we'll have plenty of bandages, we'll have plenty of equipment, rest in between flights, and a full complement of people. But one of my drivers for the organization, for the unit, is as safely as we can, mm -hmm. knowing that you can never eliminate risk. You can only search for it, recognize it, mitigate it, is to build training profiles and train my airmen so that they can accomplish the mission nobody wants to have to do under the conditions nobody thinks uh, we could accomplish a mission under repeatedly and be confident doing that and return home alive and with honor. I think that last one especially would be uh, something that you and Colonel Potter would agree on, keeping, keeping folks safe. Hey. Uh, Colonel Zimmerman, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Beneath the Wing. We are going to close this out, and as we do, I think we are going to probably enjoy singing something together from Looking Glass. Yes, that's who sang Brandy. Um, oh. <laughs> we'll let you go. Please join me again on Beneath the Wing as we uh, discover some of the great stories and people serving out here at the 133rd Airlift Wing. Take care.